Well, good morning. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1. Um, before we get any, any farther into this morning's message, let me simply note that this is, in fact, a re-recording of a message uh, from February 26th. We had some difficulty uh, in service with the recording, so this is, this is a re-recording. And so if it lacks a little bit of the spontaneity, uh, if it doesn't sound quite as um, fresh and live, you'll, you'll know why, this, why that is. I'm doing this here in my study. But it is the message that was shared on February 26th. And so what we're going to do, um, as we did that morning, is back up a little bit. Uh, I'm frequently asked when we're going through a passage of Scripture, because I don't touch on every single verse, um, why I cover some verses and why I don't cover others and, and how that whole dynamic works. And I really I don't feel the need to speak to every verse, primarily because that really is the responsibility of each individual believer. And that's why we stress so much the need to be reading in your Bibles, going through your Bibles. Um, I speak to the specific verses, verses that I think are especially relevant at this time in our fellowship as I as I feel in prayer when I seek the Lord. But it's so critical for each and every one of us to be readers of the Word, students of the Word. That is so very important. There was a, there's an old gospel song that has always been, um, well, it's been important to me. It's impacted me for a long time. It's by an old gospel writer, Blind Willie Johnson, wrote a long time ago. And he wrote this great, great song called Nobody's Fault But Mine. Now, and I'm not, by the way, not talking about the uh, Led Zeppelin or the Grateful Dead cover of this song. They really messed it up. They, they did covers and it. They weren't, weren't good, weren't good. But as Blind Willie Johnson wrote this, this song, um, the chorus was, nobody's fault but mine, nobody's fault but mine. If I don't read and my soul be lost, nobody's fault but mine. goes on to say, had the Bible in my home. I had the Bible in my home. If I don't read, my soul be lost, nobody's fault but mine. Daddy, he taught me how to read. Mommy, mama, she taught me how to read. Sister, she taught me how to read. If I don't read and my soul be lost, ain't nobody's fault but mine. So important to be people of the Word. So, um, really want to encourage everyone to be readers of the Word. And we're not going to talk about each verse as we go through it. But sometimes when people approach me, and I always love that. I re really appreciate when people come up and they talk about what we've shared or what I've preached about, talked about, and uh, they share their thoughts. And sometimes I do go, you know what? That's something we should back up and talk about. And so that's the case this morning. Uh, somebody approached me about this passage of Scripture. So we're going to back up a little bit from where we were a couple weeks back. And we're going to pick up the account, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And it reads this way. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you to, be, to become fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the Word and the time that we spend together. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for the time that we have. And Father, we would ask that as You would um, minister to our hearts this morning, Lord, the, the need of our hearts is to hear from You, Father. Let the words that are spoken be, Father, from Your heart to ours, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So we're going to talk about fishermen, about being 
fisherman. It's one of the most well-known figures of speech that Jesus used, and it is a figure of speech. He didn't mean that the disciples were going to get their nets and go wrap up people in their nets and bring them in, you know, to the meetings and to the synagogue and to where Jesus was preaching. No, no, no. It's a figure of speech, and this figure of speech tells us a lot about what Jesus expected of his disciples, what they could expect of him, and in fact, what he expects of us, what we can expect of him. And what I really want to do to that end this morning is first look just really quickly at where we are in the account, set the context, and then look in detail at exactly what is said and done here. Uh, and as we're doing that, ask the question, how does this speak to us? So first, let's kind of set ourselves in the account, make sure we're looking at things through the right lens. We're early in Mark's record, still in the first chapter. Uh, Jesus has been baptized by John, and as we said before, that, that was his identity being established. The voice said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That secured his identity of the Son of God. The Holy Spirit came and rested upon him. That secured his identity as the anointed Messiah, Messiah rather, the Christ, right? So his identity has been established. He's been in the wilderness. Satan's taken his best shot and lost, right? So now he's starting his ministry. He's coming up to speed. His ministry is beginning, and it begins in the environs of Galilee. So he's walking by the shore of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias, if you prefer the Sea of Genesaret, all names for the same body of water. And he comes across some fishermen, two pairs of fishermen, two pairs of brothers. And they're, and they're working with their nets. Now just a little quick moment here on what we know about commercial fishing in the Sea of Galilee, how they did it. Um, it was principally net fishing. There were three different kinds of nets that were used commercially. Uh, there was the large avikton, uh, which would, would correspond to our seine net. We do a lot of seining here in Alaska. Well, this would have been a seine net, very similar to what we use today. There would also have been a trammel net. Now, this is not what's referred to in Scripture. This is just a little bit of background. The trammel net was like our gill net, a little more complicated, actually, in that it had three different layers to it with varying sizes of openings. But it was a gill net, and they would use that um, from, from boats. And then from shore, they had a much smaller circular net with weights around the perimeter. They could use that from the boat as well, but that was principally used from shore. Now, the thing to note is all of these were very, very labor-intensive. Obviously, they had no mechanization like uh, commercial fishermen might have today, but the nets were also a lot heavier and therefore smaller because the material that was used wasn't the uh, rather sophisticated material our fishermen have today. So very, very labor-intensive and usually uh, in the case of the seine or the trammel required a lot of teamwork and that all kinds of fit into the visual as well. Um, but both systems were dependent, or rather all three systems were dependent on going to where the fish were. That's also uh, a key point. One thing I would note, as an aside, talking about fishing, in the, in the first century, in the Sea of Galilee, we don't see the picture of the, of the hook and the line used in any of these analogies or word pictures that Jesus uses talking about discipleship. When Jesus talks about his disciples becoming fishers of men, it's, it's the picture's a net. There are a couple cases where the hook and the line is used in the New Testament, and just to touch on those quickly, um, in Matthew 17, 24, that's the only place that the hook and line are specifically referred to, and that's where Jesus was called on to pay the poll tax, and he told Peter to go down to the shore, cast in a line, and he would hook, and the first fish you hook and bring out, look in its mouth, and you'll find the coin that you need to pay the tax for us. So that's, that's when the hook and line are actually specifically referred to. There's another time where the idea of a hook and a line is very powerfully alluded to. You may not have noticed this, but that's in the book of James. 
James 1.14, talking about sin and temptation. And James writes, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Well, both of those words, in, drawn away and enticed, are fishing words. In fact, that, that word for enticed, volos, is the word that you would see on the sign of, of a bait shop if you were to go to Greece today. It's a modern Greek word for bait. So when we're struggling with temptation, we can know exactly that's what's going on. Uh, the, the devil, uh, aided and abetted by our own lust, is, is just hanging that big old dead herring out in front of us. I know that doesn't sound very appetizing to me, but boy, when temptation comes, we do struggle. And it's, it's helpful to remember where it's coming from, right? We are being drawn away. We're being tempted, just like that big old salmon, right? We don't want to be that. We don't want to be in that state. So that's something else just to be aware of. But for the visual of the disciples, talking about the disciples' call to become fishers of men, uh, the visual is completely that of, of the net, of the net. So now let's zero in a bit uh, and talk about some detail here. Verse 17, this first verse is loaded. This verse 17 is like a treasure chest, man. You open it up, there's so much great stuff in it. First, it starts with this command on the part of our Lord to say, follow me. There's an awful lot right there. And I know I'm kind of stating the obvious here, but it's still important. In order to say, follow me, there had to be a me. That's why it's so important that we have that section uh, in the first chapter where Jesus' identity is made so clear. It is rock solid. He is the Son of God. He is the Anointed One. When Jesus said, follow me, he knew who he was. His self-concept his self is firmly fixed. You can follow me, he's saying, because I know who I am. Jesus knew who he was, right? Same is true of us. If we're going to tell people, that they should come after us. We need to know who we are. Paul once said, be an imitator of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. Paul knew who he was. He was an imitator of Christ. He was called to be like Christ. And that's what we're talking about all this year here at Gateway Christian Fellowship. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the character of Christ being fashioned in us so that we can demonstrate his character to the world. The character of Christ fashioned in us so that we can demonstrate his character to the world knowing who we are in Christ. Absolutely critical. And then there has to be a direction. If you're going to tell somebody, follow me, you have to be going someplace. There has to be a direction or a goal. Jesus always had a direction. He always had a goal, right? He was on a road. He had a road to follow, and he called his disciples to follow him. You know, Jesus never told his disciples, hey, go out there and try something, and if it works, come let me know. No. One way or another, Jesus had already gone ahead of them. One way or another, Jesus always knew what was going to happen. And the same is true in our lives. He will never say, I have got a job for you to do. I'm not sure if it's going to work or not. Go out and give it a try, and then we'll talk about it when you get back. No. We follow him. He always, it is so comforting to know. He always is going before us. He always has gone before us, right? And what this really tells us is that the disciples' success in whatever they're going to be doing is going to be dependent wholly on this one simple thing. Do they follow Christ? And that is so true of us. Whatever we may attempt in this world, of any fashion or nature, the ultimate success of that, and by that I mean success that counts, success that can be measured in eternity, is going to be wholly dependent on how closely we follow Him. On our own, we're not much good. It's just, just the way it is, right? Their success will depend ultimately on how well they have followed Jesus, and that's, that's true of us, right? And they, they, everything that they learn... Every lesson they learn that they will apply in what they do. They'll learn by following Him. It's all, all about following Him. So that's the first lesson. 
Jesus said, follow me. There's got to be me. There's got to be a direction, right? The second flows out of that. And this is the part that we most often miss. And this is what is so very important. Jesus did not say, sometimes what's not said is important, especially if we think it's what is said, right? We, we read these, and there's even some translations out there that have Jesus saying to the disciples, follow me and I will make you fish for men. You may have read that. You may have heard that. You may think about it in those terms. Follow me and I will make you fish for men. That's not what he said. He said, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. It's a change in their identity. It's a change in their being. It's not just, well, yesterday you fished for fish and tomorrow, same people, same techniques, same mindset, same mentality, you'll fish for men. No. Their very being had to be changed. They're still going to be fishers, but they will have become fishers of men. Jesus is telling his followers, I will change your very essence, the very essence of who you are, into one who fishes for man. doesn't just change the catch. Fish before, men now. No, he changes their very, very essence. You know, When we talk about evangelism, spreading the gospel, which is what we're talking about here, you know, reaching the lost, we talk about techniques a lot. We talk about strategies a lot. We talk about allocating resources a lot. Of all of these things, and they're all important, and they all need to be talked about. Methodology, training, resources, all important, but they're also all secondary. They are of secondary importance. What is most important, what is of primary importance, is this matter of being. What they became, what we must become. Because there's a difference between somebody who fishes because, well, they like the fish and it's kind of fun and maybe they'll catch dinner, and somebody who is really at the very essence of who they are, a fisherman. And you know them. Maybe you are one, right? Maybe you have that bumper sticker on your car that says the worst day of fishing is better than you know the best day of work or anything else, right? We don't, you don't fish in order to live, you live in order to fish, right? You know who I'm talking about. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's you, right? Big difference. So these characters, these, these, these four brothers, two pairs of brothers, they were fishermen. That's who they were. But now they're going to be a whole different kind of fishermen. They're going to become fishers of men. Now, as I thought about this, and I, I thought, how do we fill this idea out? How do we fill this picture out in our mind? Um, it happened that Pastor Joyce and I were driving down to Kenai to visit her brother, who is a fisherman, by the way. And sister-in-law, who is a fisherman as well. Um, and I thought, what a great place to contemplate what it is to be a fisherman driving down to Kenai, right? Couldn't be better. And um, all the way down, I was thinking about it. And then we spent a couple days there. And on the way back, I started to write these thoughts down. What is it that characterizes a true fisherman? Someone who at the essence of their being is a fisherman. And after I had my list done, actually as I was writing it, uh, Joyce said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm making this list. And But then I finished it and I said, what, what are you thinking? She gave me her list and just off the top of her head. And the, and the crazy thing was it was the same list. And we both think thinking in the same terms. We both spent a lot of time fishing and around fishermen. Um, but then we both said something almost spontaneously that was really, really cool. After we got through discussing our list, we kind of both said, and it's a universal list. It's really the same of fishermen anywhere. And we started to talk about that. It's, it's been our privilege to um, know fishermen, talk with fishermen in a wide variety of environments, all the way from Hawaii, where we have some very good friends who absolutely love to spearfish, that's who they are, they're spearfishermen. Um, all the way to Greece, other friends and acquaintances who 
love to fish. They're spear fishermen as well. Of course, in Alaska, I grew up in Southern California. I'm the son of a man who loved to fish. I'm the nephew of two men who loved to fish. I mean, it was very much part of our Southern California experience. I spent a good bit of time in the Pacific Northwest. That's where I came to Christ, around Northwest Coast fishermen. Really privileged. One of them that I'll never forget is when we were in uh, the British Isles. Joyce was doing a, a sabbatical study program. Uh, we were in Ireland, and we happened to be on the coast of Ireland. And um, we went into this incredible fish and chips place there on the coast of Ireland. Never had fish like that in my life. It was, uh, was deep-fried halibut or cod, I don't remember, but it was smoked. They smoked it before they deep fried it. It was absolutely amazing. And it was so good, I said, I've got to go talk to the cook. So I went into the into the little, across the street, into the, actually it was a bar, I went in the bar, talked to the bar, I said, man, this was incredible. He says, well, you can't talk to the cook because the cook's busy. He says, but he pointed to another guy. He said, that guy, he's the guy that actually caught that fish. You can go talk to the fisherman. So I went over to the fisherman and I said, man, that was incredible fish. I don't think I've ever had anything like that. And we started talking back and forth and I told him I loved the fish. And he finally, he said, well, where are you from? I said, well, I come from Alaska. And he said, I hate you. <laughs> Both kind of laughed. He said, you know, he said, around here, we catch a 20-pound halibut. We think we got something big, right? You guys, you know what halibut looked like. And we kind of went on from there. But he was a fisherman. We talked about fishing. I mean, it's kind of a universal, the way fishermen talk, right? So here's, here's part of our list. I had like 20 things. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you all of them. I had like 20 things that characterize a true fisherman. Fisher, at the essence of their being. Of course, first is identity. It's who they are. It's what they talk about. You talk about them the first time you meet them. You might get through the first conversation, but you won't get very far into that second one before you start thinking, this guy is all about fishermen. This lady's all about fishing. When they talk about it, and they get, when they do talk about it, they get excited, man. A good friend of mine, uh, a tremendous role model for me, um, now transitioning from fishing for men to fishing for soul. His name was Bill Wesson, tremendous man of God. And, and I helped him build his house, and he would pick me up in the morning, and we'd go to the bakery. Yeah, you got a good boss when he picks you up in the morning, and the first stop is the bakery. And we'd, we'd go in for coffee and apple fritters. And the amazing thing was we would sit down to have that coffee and, and enjoy that marvelous fritter from the bakery in Homer. And um, within 10 minutes, he would be talking to someone about their soul. Like it was the most natural thing in the world. Somebody he'd never met before, they would just open up to him. And that man was called to be an evangelist. He had the gift of evangelism and it animated him. He got excited when he was sharing Jesus with people. It was an amazing, amazing, amazing things to walk. walk. So that was his identity. The second thing is, fishing is the priority for a fisherman, you know. They, they arrange their lives, they schedule their lives around. And by the way, I'm not saying any of this is wrong. I'm just making observations, right? And they schedule their, their lives, everything about around fishing, you know. Um, believers who are fishers of men arrange their lives around fishing for men, right? You think about the Apostle Paul and the change in his life when he got knocked off that horse in the book of Acts. You know, it wasn't just... Paul didn't just say, well, yesterday I was, I was trying to build up the king of Israel, and now I'm going to build up the church. Yesterday I was, I was preaching against Christians, now I'm preaching for them. No, no, the change in Paul was much deeper than that. Think about this, if you will. When Paul was, pers was persecuting the church, his vision, his world, was of a closed box. And the pure law, the pure truth, the pure People of God were in that box, and his primary concern was to keep anything that defiled out of that box. He wanted that box closed and shut. 
Well, it wasn't long after he got knocked off that horse that he started opening things up, didn't he? And he became a man that wanted everyone. He said, my heart's desire is that all Israel be saved. He wanted everyone to come in. He wasn't afraid of people bringing in things that might pollute the, tr the true church. He wanted people to come in with their junk and all so that Jesus could clean them up, so God could change their lives. Paul's entire set of priorities changed when he became a fisher of men, right? Another thing about fishermen, might get somebody in trouble here, uh, fishermen invest in it. Yeah, yeah. Man, I see some of those boats rolling down the road. I think they paid for for their boats and I paid for my house. Man, fishermen like to invest in a boat, you know, the fishing tackle, the gear, the electronics, all the latest, greatest stuff. But you know what the biggest investment fishermen make is? Their time. Oh, yeah. Not just the time fishing, the time getting ready, the time after it, the time thinking. of It's all about time. Those who fish for souls invest in it. They put their money where their mouth is. They put their time where their mouth is. And they put their prayer. That's the biggest investment for a fisher of men. Is that investment in prayer. Because, you know, the reason, and, and, and Bill talked to me, Bill Weston talked to me about this. It wasn't just he picked out people at random. He prayed earnestly that he would know who to talk to sitting in that bakery. And God would lead him to that person who was ready to open their heart, who was ready to share their need. That time in prayer is so absolutely critical. They pray so they can hear. Right? Number four, real fishermen love to share the joy of fishing. You know, my dad, again, he was a fisherman. He loved to fish. And I grew up in Southern California, so, of course, opportunities were somewhat limited. You had to travel quite a ways. But he belonged to this, this club, mostly guys. Uh, they get together, they talk about hunting, and they talk about fishing. And some of them were, were involved in other, like, outdoor kind of stuff. A lot of them were competitive uh, rifle and shotgun shooters. So they, they would get together, and they'd have these meetings. Great, great. I have mean, great memories of it. But one of the things they did that I remember so fondly. I mean, this is like seared into my memory from my earliest days. Uh, this group, of, this club of men, primarily men, would, they had a deal going with the Montebello Municipal Golf Course. Yeah, Montebello Municipal Golf Course, regular, you know, suburban Southern California golf course, that once a year, um, they would get this truck, this tank truck full of trout. They would get it from the California Department of Fish and Game. They'd buy it from the hatchery and they'd bring it to the golf course. And there was a really big water trout, like pond, uh, right by one of the parking lots at the golf course. And they would dump all of these trout in that pond. And they let them sit there for like a day so they could kind of settle down a little bit. And then when starting the close of school on Friday, all the way through the weekend, and this is right in LA. And we're right in the heart of L.A. Um, any kid, like I think age 13, I'm kind of guessing at the age, but any small child, boy or girl, could come down and these men would have tackle and bait and everything all set up. And these kids from the city who would probably never have a chance to fish got to catch trout. And they had a blast. Those kids had a glorious time. They had almost as much fun as the adults did. And you can bet it was the adults that really enjoyed it. They had so much fun. It was glorious because they were excited about sharing the joy of fishing with these kids. It was absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Next one, number five. This is a real test. Ooh, this is a real test. Real fishermen, real fishermen love it when somebody else catches a really nice fish. Now, it's okay. You can have that little pain of, oh, I wanted that one. But real fishermen love it 
when somebody else, especially somebody near and dear to them, catches a big fish. Like I said, my, I had two uncles that were also big fishermen. My dad's uh, younger brother uh, lived in Santa Barbara, and he, he would take his two boys down to Mexico, and they would fish down there. And I remember one particular trip. He was so excited when he came back. Uh, he, a friend, and then my two cousins had gone with him, and um, they were going out for, I think, swordfish or sailfish, one of the two. And um, they got out on the boat, and I think it was my younger cousin's first time going out. He was still quite young. And they got out on the boat, and, and my uncle told, was telling my, my, uncle, my, dad, uncle, my uncle telling my dad this story. They, uh, when they got out, the skipper of the boat said, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I lost some tackle yesterday. I only have three jigs for swordfish, sailfish, whatever it was. And, of course, my, the younger of, of my two cousins went, great. I know who's not going to fish. It's going to be me. But the skipper said, don't worry. Um, I've got a tuna jig, and there's some really nice tuna in this area. So three of you, three of you will fish with swordfish, sailfish jigs, and the, and the younger one, the smaller one, he'll fish with a, a tuna jig. My uncle was so pleased when he came back from that trip, and he told my dad about it. Who caught, who caught the sailfish, right? The, the, my youngest cousin, the one with the tuna jig, right? And my uncle was so excited about that. He got excited when his son caught a, big, caught a bigger fish than anybody else. He got caught the only big fish that day. Real fishermen love it when somebody else does well. And you had better believe that's true of those who fish for souls. They get excited. This competitiveness that sometimes plagues the church, it, it has no place. It has no place. There's a genuine excitement. When we start feeling jealous about the success of others in any form of ministry, we need to ask our, we need to check our heart really quick. I mean, right now. The, the real fisher of, of souls, the real fisher of men, there's an excitement when you hear of somebody else drawing people into the kingdom. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing. Number six, real fishermen define success differently. Again, that bumper sticker. Better is the worst day of fishing than the best day at work, right? Real fishermen define success differently, and that is absolutely true of those who would fish for souls. Because one of the beauties of fishing for men is that you don't have to be there when the catch is made. It is equally wonderful to hear years later that the, and here we'll change the metaphor a little bit, that the seeds that you sowed were harvested by somebody else. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Again, forgive the change of metaphor, but when we fish for souls, if somebody else brings the catch in, that is marvelous. We define success so much, so much differently. Number seven, real fishermen study it. Oh yeah, how many of us have that big stack of magazines in our house? 20 magazines high, all the different fishing ma We want to know about fishing. We want to know what the latest techniques, the, the trends, and all these. We want to know about these things, right? Well, those whose heart is after souls, whose hearts are after souls, study. They read. They're in the Word. They read about techniques. They read about methodology. They read about the best way to allocate time. They read about those things. Invest in it. Study it, right? Number eight, real fishermen can be identified. This is the last one. Real fishermen can be identified by the decisions they make. Look at verse 18. They left their nets and followed. Verse 20, they left their father and Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow him. The person who is committed to introducing people to Jesus will act accordingly. It's as simple as that. The person who is genuinely committed to introducing people to Jesus will make their decisions accordingly. There are some very observable traits of the real fishermen. 
Now, why are we saying this? Because some of you, there's probably a pretty good chance you're thinking, yeah, I'm not called to be an evangelist, you know. I, the Bible says, Ephesians 4.11, it says he calls some to be evangelists, right? And I can relate to that. I am personally not called to be an evangelist. I'm called to be a pastor and a teacher. I am not called to be an evangelist. So you may be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not called to be an evangelist. Why should I be called concerned with this task? Well, if that's the thought in your mind right now, I'm just not sure I'm called to be an evangelist. I'm not sure I'm called to be bringing people to Jesus, casting the net, however you want to describe it. Let me ask you two questions. Number one, are you sure? How do you know? Have you ever spent time asking, Lord, would you have me? I mean, you expecting him to like send you a telegram or something? Have you spent time asking, Lord, is this what you would have me do? Search for souls? Fish for souls, right? Maybe you should. Spend some time asking you. The second thing is even for those of us who are not called to be an evangelist, there's a question to be asked. There's, there, there's a question before us. What do we do with the fact that we are called to be light and life? Light in a dark place, life in a dying world. Ask yourself, if you were standing by a pool or a pond or a lake and you saw a drowning person, and looking around, you saw no lifeguard. What would you do? Sorry, bucko. I'm, I'm, I'm not called to be a lifeguard. No. You would do everything in your power to save that person. And even if you couldn't swim, you'd look for something to throw them. None, I don't think any of us would stand by and watch someone drown if we had any means possible to help. You know, when I came to Christ, and this is what has influenced me a lot. When I came to Christ, it wasn't long after that that I found out about how the person that led me to Christ came to Christ because I met the person that led them to Christ. And I hung around with that person and I found out something about how they came. And it became very clear to me um, in a very short period of time that my experience of salvation, what saved my soul from an eternity in hell, and that is what we're talking about, saving a soul from an eternity in hell, what saved my soul from an eternity without God was a long line of people who told of Jesus one after another after another, who led someone to Jesus one after another. And I was struck powerfully with this reality that I did not want to be the one where that change stopped. I did not want the responsibility before my God of, of learning that that change stopped with me. That's a horrific thought. Horrible thing. No. I want to be another link in the chain of people telling other people about Jesus, drawing people to Christ. You know, another way to put this, um, how do I know that my sharing the story of my simply sharing the story of my salvation with someone, simply telling someone how I came, how do I know where that will lead? That, that can be a very effective way of fishing for man. Just telling what Jesus has done for you. It should be the part of a part of every one of us, right? God has not called us all to be evangelists. He's, but He has called us all to be occupied in the task of spreading the gospel, of inviting people to know Jesus, of inviting people out of darkness into His marvelous light, helping people to grow in Jesus. And I'll conclude with this. Remember that Ephesians 4 passage where it says yeah, He called some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and pastors and teachers. Why does He do it? 
Does he call some to be evangelists so the work of evangelism can get done so the rest of us won't have to do it? No, he says why he calls people into those tasks. For he goes on to say in Ephesians 4, he calls these people for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray simply and hopefully humbly that we might be found useful to your purposes to build your kingdom by your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.